On this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, we review upcoming deadlines and requirements for Medicare quality reporting, including the NHSN vaccine reporting, discuss updated frequently asked questions for the No Surprises Act, provide an update on CMS quality reporting and oversight memos related to the vaccine mandate, and in our focus segment, discuss coding and billing and interview Scott Megason with MD Strategies. Welcome to the AC Podcast with John Gailey, the longest-running podcast specifically focused on the freestanding ambulatory surgery industry. This episode is sponsored by Surgical Information Systems, providing cutting-edge information solutions for surgery providers and ambulatory healthcare strategies, the nation's leading regulatory compliance resource for ambulatory surgery centers. For more information about our sponsors, please visit our website at ASCPodcast.com. Welcome to episode 154 of the ASC podcast with John Gailey for April 16th, 2022. Recording from our studios in Spencerport, New York. This is Sue Cronkite, Chief Researcher for the ASC podcast with John Gailey and Senior Nurse Consultant for Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. The ASC regulatory environment is extremely dynamic and the material provided in this episode is based on the information available as of the date of the recording. Joining me is John Gailey, the owner of Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies and recognized as one of the nation's leading experts in the ambulatory surgery industry. Mr. Gailey is the author of over 10 books on the ASC industry and a frequent industry speaker on regulatory accreditation and finance issues. So welcome. Um, it's springtime, though uh, mm. you are shivering as I though <laughs> it is still winter here in wonderful upstate New York, but yes. it's great to... Uh, Great to be finally getting back uh, to the studio here to talk about some of the mm-hmm. things that are going on. It's been very yeah. busy. We have a lot of news, and we've had to kind of pick and choose that which we find most important for the industry right now. And, and of course, we've been, uh, as we always are, very busy. But we've had this has been an unusual period. Over seven over a seven day period, we had four surveys, mm-hmm. uh, which were all great ex- uh, experiences. I want to thank all of the exp- uh, the surveyors. We've really had a what should I call it? a rash of great surveyors? I mean, mm-hmm. it's been a pleasure really yep. uh, talking to them, both um, you know, accreditation surveyors and state surveyors. So, uh, and of course, congratulations to all of our our centers that have uh, have been uh, so well prepared for these these surveys. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, needless to say, surveys are are going on. They're very mm-hmm. uh, active. Surveyors are um, you know on the top of their game right now, and uh, there's just so much that they have to go through. But you know, it's been a very educational. Uh, process, even even with the experience that we all have in the industry, mm-hmm. I always learn something from surveyors uh, when they're out there, and we always try to pass that information on to you. And so we've had a really great experience working with HFAP, you know, one mm-hmm. of the new 
um, not not really a new organization, but kind of new to the ASC space, uh, and they are uh, somewhat of a spinoff from Triple H C. Triple H C had purchased them a number of years ago, and then uh, spun them back off, and now they're um, uh, they're out there doing surveys of, of ASCs, and uh, we've had a very mm-hmm. good experience working with two of our centers. One is uh, coming up with a deemed status mm-hmm. survey. I think you know uh, you've been working with them much more directly, but I think it's fair to say that we've been very impressed with how um, comfortable they are answering questions and assisting the organizations through yes. the survey, you know, even application process and making sure that they're ready. Can you just talk a little bit about your experience in working with uh, you know the nurses mm-hmm. uh, over there? Yep, and it's some people may know them as ACHC. There's kind of the, the right. two different names. Um, they've just been very available um, when we've had questions because they are a little. They follow the CMS guidelines, obviously, but um, they're also just you know every accrediting agency is just a little bit different. So you know we've set up Zooms and been able to just ask questions. Yeah. Um, they've got a very their manual is just very clearly written out. And um, so, you know, we're just starting to work with them. Just got the application in. So, you know, we'll we'll see how all that goes. But um, we've been very, very pleased so far. We feel yeah. like they, they're they going to be great to work with. And, and and we have actually talked to them about being mm-hmm. on the podcast in the future. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, just like we've had Triple HC on the podcast, we've tried mm-hmm. to get Joint Commission on the podcast. It's been often difficult to, to schedule that. So uh, we'll hopefully have them on uh, soon. And Sue, uh, we're recording this on a Saturday afternoon. Yeah. Uh, we had to delay a little bit. Recording. We're going to do it like around noontime, but we uh, we're so exhausted from our morning yeah. session, uh, <laughs> our Saturday sessions, which are a part of being a patron mm-hmm. member of the podcast. Yeah. We have over a hundred uh, members, I think, one hundred and twenty uh, patron members of our podcast here. And one of the benefits of being a patron member is uh, joining us on Saturday mornings at ten a.m. Eastern for these uh, Saturday uh, discussions. And we have had so much fun. I mean, I'm really looking forward to that every mm-hmm. every week and some great discussions. Uh, and this week in particular, we had this, uh, uh, as, as is often the case, uh, somebody brings a question up toward the end. You mm-hmm. know, we usually try to keep it to an mm-hmm. hour. And it turned into a 45-minute conversation about what centers are doing with regard to staffing. And you and I, while we were uh, listening to everybody provide uh, advice, said, let's do an episode about this. Yeah, because so, uh, I don't know anybody that's not struggling with, that's right. with some of this, either um, finding new staff Keeping the staff that they have, you know, these are really huge issues right now. So they had some good ideas. Yep. So what we're going to do is uh, hopefully sometime this week we're going to record an episode uh, where we're going to have uh, some of our patron members who uh, who speak regularly on Saturdays mm-hmm. talk talk through some of the things that they had uh, mentioned and hopefully that'll provide some uh, great ideas for those of you out there. Well, all of you out there that are suffering, um, you know, through this difficult time in recruiting and retaining uh, good staff. So. Sue, we've had a lot of news. I guess I'll start off. Um, every, uh, you know, it used to be uh, the quality and safety, uh, quality, safety, and oversight policy uh, and, and memos to the states and regions were, were things that happened or came out like once in a blue moon, you know, maybe once every six months or a year. And now uh, they're coming out monthly. So uh, a regular segment now in our uh, our podcast is discussion of recent, what we call QSO. So again, a, a QSO is a quality, safety, and oversight policy and memo to states and regions. And this is how CMS notifies uh, surveyors about changes to uh, the conditions for coverage in the interpreter guidelines. 
And unfortunately, what we're going to refer to, the most recent uh, guidance, is a repeat or is an update to previous guidance that you've had. I just wanted to kind of point this out to you and kind of talk a little bit about a few of the changes that occurred. So so on April 5th, the uh, CMS provided revised guidance for the interim final rule for the Medicare and Medicaid programs related to the omnibus COVID-19 healthcare staff vaccinations. And I, I'm pretty sure everybody's kind of tired of hearing us talk about this, but uh, it is important that uh, you just kind of keep up to date with this revised guidance so that you be prepared uh, when surveyors come out. So this is part of this continuing saga uh, of the conditions for coverage uh, related to the mandatory vaccination. It greatly complicates the survey gu- guidance that surveyors have already been given regarding this. Uh, you know, Sue, I just finished the training through my accreditation organization on how to how to uh, survey to this. Uh, and as we've talked about before, it is definitely going to add time to uh, regular surveys. Figure that your surveyors will probably spend, depending upon whether you have uh, people that are have been exempted from this requirement. Mm-hmm. It's going to add a, probably a good hour to many of the surveys that you're having that, where they're going to focus exclusively on this. So what came out in the April 5th guidelines is they did verify that the Life Safety Code complaint surveys, that in those uh, Life Safety Code complaint surveys, surveyors are not going to have to uh, survey to the conditions for coverage related to the mandatory vaccination. So they won't put uh, the onus on uh, Life Safety surveyors uh, having to uh, to check into this. And that makes perfect sense, of course. They did clarify that you do have to follow the suggestions for actions to take for unvaccinated staff. Uh, but it provides some flexibility. So we know when we grant an exemption to an employee for either a medical exemption or, or a religious exemption, if that's allowed in your state, that you have to provide the employee with some accommodation. In other words, uh, you, you can't just treat them the same way that you treat uh, vaccinated employees. So they added the following note. Uh, to this guidance, and this is what it reads. This requirement is not explicit and does not specify which actions must be taken. The examples above are not all-inclusive and represent actions that can be implemented. However, facilities can choose other precautions that align with the intent of the regulation, which is intended to mitigate the transmission and spread of COVID-19 for all staff who are not fully vaccinated. So it is important to understand that you you have to treat unvaccinated staff who have been granted exemptions differently than you treat vaccinated staff. It is up to you to decide how you're going to do that. And the guidance here provides some examples of that. And the common ones are, you know, remaining fully masked Mm -hmm. or being tested on a weekly basis. Those are kind of the most common uh, accommodations that you have. So make sure that when you grant the exemption to your employee for either medica- uh, medical exemption or or religious exemption, you specify specifically what those accommodations mm-hmm. are. So the surveyors are going to be looking for a letter back to the employee stating that they've been granted the exemption and that these are the accommodations that the employee must meet in order to continue with that exemption. They'll be looking to see that in your records. And some states do have different requirements. Now, Another thing to remember is that contracted staff are included, and there is a definition stated in the uh, guidance. And Sue, why don't you read what uh, the definition of staff is from the guidance? Okay, so staff refers to individuals who provide any care, treatment, or other services for the ASC and or its patients, including employees, 
licensed practitioners, adult students, trainees, and volunteers, and individuals who provide care treatment or other services for the ASC and or its patients under contract or by other arrangement. This also includes individuals under contract or by arrangement with the ASC, including hospice and dialysis staff, physical therapists, occupational therapists, mental health professionals, licensed practitioners or adult students, trainees, or volunteers. Um, it would not include anyone who provides only telemedicine services or support services outside of the ASC and who does not have any direct contact with patients or other staff. And then it continued, it added language regarding how they will survey, how surveyors will survey for ensuring contracted staff are vaccinated. And this is what they state. The ASC will provide their process for how the ASC ensures that their contracted staff are compliant with the vaccination requirement. Unfortunately, that's as much as they give you. But you're going to have to uh, provide the surveyors with your process to ensure that your contracted staff are compliant with the vaccination requirement. And then it provided guidance to surveyors on how to select a sample of staff to survey for the vaccination compliance. Now, Sue, <laughs> this morning when we were talking with our other surveyors during our uh, our weekly uh, discussion for with our patrons, um, we noted that uh, this is the only time in the interpretive guidelines where there's actually specified specific numbers that we have to survey to. Mm -hmm. uh, even when we survey the number of medical records, it's not actually stated how many medical records in the interpretive guidelines we have to review. But in this guidance, it does state the following. There should be a minimum of six direct care patient engagement staff uh, reviewed. And this includes direct care contracted staff that are on site at the time of the survey. Of this six-person sample, four should include vaccinated staff and contractors and two unvaccinated staff and contractors, uh, one that is not fully vaccinated and one with a medical exemption or temporary delay. Two of the direct care staff sampled should be contractors. So in other words, if you have a contractor, they're going to look at it. If you have a um, uh, an individual who has been granted an exemption, they're going to look at it. So make sure that your records are pristine when it comes to that. We picked up a new client this last week. Uh, and when I looked at the records, they only had in the file a copy of the medical exemption signed by the doctor. There was no indication that they granted this exemption, nor was there uh, any uh, letter uh, to the patient that indicated what the conditions were or what the accommodations were. So be very, very careful to make sure that you have good documentation of this. And, of course, you have to make sure that the information is kept locked up because this mm -hmm. is HIPAA information. Yeah. And the guidance also provided the following note. Failure for contract staff to provide evidence of vaccination status re reflects noncompliance and should be cited under the requirement to have policies and procedures for ensuring that all staff are fully vaccinated, but vaccinated, except for those staff who have been granted exemptions or temporary delay. In other words, you can't just come back and say, well, they refuse to give it to me. You're going to have to, uh, you're going to have to do something about that. Either get it or you're going to have to tell that contractor that they can't work. So I think, again, this is an area that perhaps a lot of people have kind of ignored or haven't spent much time thinking about. I do know when I go on site as an independent contractor for our clients, I'm not always asked the question as to whether, you know, what my vaccine status is. Mm -hmm. Now, we're going to provide links to all of these QSOs so that you can read these things yourself uh, and make sure that you provide the guidance to your governing body because you're going to have to implement policies here. So, Sue, there has been a lot of discussion lately. Mm -hmm. You and I have been keeping an eye on this about the Vanderbilt uh, nurse situation. 
Uh, we've been kind of holding off on this until we mm-hmm. got some more results. We still don't yeah. know uh, what the, the sentence, sentence is be. going to be. But can you yeah. walk through it? And mm-hmm. then we'll have a little bit of a discussion about what it really means to our nursing staff. We Again, we had a great conversation during our weekly session yeah. today about the impact. But go ahead. Why don't you explain? Okay. So I'll kind of review the case. I know everybody's probably heard of it. but So the Vanderbilt nurse was just found guilty of reckless homicide and impaired adult abuse on Friday, March 25th. So just a quick review of the case. Um, A 75-year-old patient was being treated for a subdural hematoma, but she was alert and she was improving. Um, She was supposed to have a full body scan. And because she had claustrophobia, she was um, very anxious, so she was prescribed a dose of Versed. When the nurse tried to get the medication, she triggered an override feature and typed in VE. And she chose the first medication that popped up, which unfortunately was vecuronium. She then gave the medication to the patient who was put in the scanning machine and left alone for approximately 30 minutes before someone checked on her and found she was not breathing. And she did later die. Um, The family was originally not given much information. They were told she was given the wrong medication, but they really didn't know what medication or its effects until about a year later when they saw it on the news. Um, Because this is, I think one of the most tragic things about this yeah. because as people know it's a you know a paralytic so you know she was already anxious and she was given this and she would have slowly become paralyzed until she you know was unable to breathe or speak and um then she had a cardiac arrest and passed so the nurse admitted that she had become complacent and she was distracted she had a student i think with her um, and she does take responsibility, but she pleaded not guilty and said the hospital shares some of the blame. So Vanderbilt's original report was that she, the patient had suffered a natural death, and the medication error was just hearsay that, you know, this, uh, that may have been because the report was going out so soon after the death, but, you know, there are some questions there. Um, so I said the nurse was distracted by a conversation with a colleague. Um, there were four pop-up warnings that she she admitted to ignoring, um, the medication was a pow- was in a powder form rather than a liquid, and so it had to be reconstituted. So, you know, that was another um, thing that she had missed. And there's also a warning, as people probably know, on, on top that says warning paralyzing agent right up on the cap. Um, so investigators said the hospital had a heavy burden of responsibility, but there were no penalties or charges brought against the hospital. The hospital did not report the error until an anonymous tip alerted CMS a few months later. Um, now, the nurse in her defense had said that overrides are very common, which we all know if we've worked in hospitals, and that a recent upgrade to the hospital's EHR system was causing delays in the med cabinets, and that the Vanderbilt Hospital had instructed nurses to use overrides to prevent delays. The hospital did not confirm this, but other witnesses have agreed um, with what the nurse had said. Uh, so based on sentencing guidelines, she likely faces three to six years for neglect and maybe one or two years, one to two years for negligent homicide. Now, again, the sentencing has not come about yet. As of the recording mm-hmm. of this. Uh, yeah, episode, yeah, yeah, it could be any time. The Nashville District Attorney's Office said the, di- the verdict was not an indictment against the nursing profession or medical community. Um, the prosecutor said the case did not involve a singular or a momentary mistake or lapse, but rather a series of decisions made by the nurse um, to ignore her nursing training and, def- and fail to follow safety protocols. And the following statement is, attributed, is attributable to both the American Nurses Association and the Tennessee Nurses Association. They said, we're deeply distressed by this verdict and the harmful ramifications of criminalizing the honest reporting of mistakes. And 
ECRI and ISMP both put out a statement, this case sets a precedent that can potentially lead to a shutdown and reporting of adverse events, creating a cloak of silence rather than a culture of safety. And the president and CEO of ECRI added, we firmly believe that criminalizing providers for unintended harm will hinder rather than improve healthcare in the future. And they believe the real issue in this case is that there were no effective systems in place to prevent or detect the accidental selection, removal, and administration of a neuromuscular blocker that had been obtained via override. And so the last part here is um, I saw somewhere that the POC, the plan of correction that the hospital had to put in, and... You know, if some of these had been in place, this never would have happened. So they they said they would take Vecuronium off the override, um, barcode and a second barcode um, scanner and a second nurse verification in the radiology department because there, there were neither of those. Um, they'll now be required to enter PARA to obtain any paralytic drug from the medication cabinet. And they've implemented monitoring policies for patients who receive any high alert drugs, which Versat and Vecuronium would have both been. So, you know, the, those policies were not in place. So there was a lot that really could have stopped that. And I do think she, you know, the nurse did make a, a lot of mistakes. She ignored a lot of things she should have seen. Well, but and, and the nurse is the human. one that admitted yes. that she had done something that was mm-hmm. not right. Yeah. But. I mean, and I, it's a human situ- thing. If you're if right. you're very busy and you're distracted, and I, you know, I've seen other things where when she, you know, they talked about monitoring and and the patient's nurse maybe because she was not the main nurse for the patient. She was kind of the um, fill-in nurse, yeah. you know. So she was told by a couple of people she didn't need to be monitored. And there's just a a lot of little details. Who knows exactly what what is truth? But it sounds like one of those cases where you really need to get the systems in place where the the machine is not going to give you that medication. So you have a minute to say, oh, wait a minute. Or another nurse. I mean, a lot of people, this has happened to, I think, where, you know, a near miss. And it's so frightening because you realize something could have happened. Um, You know, that's why these things have to be in place. That's why we have to be honest about it so that we can put those things in place. Well, and I can see you're passionate about it. I'm passionate about, uh, on the nursing side, as am I. But, you know, one thing that is disturbing to me is that the quality improvement program of the the hospital did not kick in and take responsibility for this, did Mm -hmm. not. And and actually, I, I mean, it seems to me like they... They tried to bury it. I mean, I have no absolute proof, but Mm -hmm, it seems mm -hmm. to me that the hospital is not taking, is not going to get nearly, um, doesn't have nearly the ramifications that the nurse Mm -hmm. does here. Yeah. And yet one thing that that we try to tell all of our centers and we, we try to talk about here on the podcast quite a bit is that the quality improvement process should be a process that identifies problems, identifies systemic problems that might be mm-hmm. related to this, uh, to, to whatever happened, uh, and to and to fix it, and try not to pin blame. Yeah, because really, I mean, <clears throat> I'm torn on this because there were a lot of very clear nursing rules that were that not followed right. and that just should have jumped out. <clears throat> I I think, but at the same time, it really doesn't matter if you know if. If you can learn to put other things in place, you know, mechanical type of things in place, not things that are subject to human error, it can prevent another death. So, you know. Human error is going to occur. It always is. And then you have to have multiple ways to identify. The Swiss cheese theory, right? That's right. Where there's all these holes, and if they line up right, 
or wrong, you know, something terrible can happen. But hopefully there's always that stop somewhere along the line. And the way you figure out where to put those blocks kind of is by following through an incident like this and saying, you know, what, where could, where could we have stopped this? How could we have stopped this at this point and at this point and at this point? And now they put those systems in place, but it should have been done before. And the reason that we're putting this uh, and making a, a pretty big part of our conversation today about this is this is why this is where I get passionate. Mm. This is why quality improvement programs exist. And this is why it's so important that we don't bury things that happen in our center, that we identify solutions to problems and we make it very well known without, with, within the organization as to the, the, the what we have what steps we've taken mm-hmm. to um, to make sure it doesn't yeah. happen again. Uh, and your 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 quality improvement program is going to be the better for it. Um, mm-hmm. We've talked about this before. You know, we've had, you know, bad outcomes in centers that we've been involved with uh, that, you know, we've learned from, we've acknowledged it, mm-hmm. uh, we've run it through our quality improvement program, we've identified it as part of our governing body minutes, uh, you know, and we've changed policies, we've changed educational programs. And when a surveyor comes out, even though this isn't the, the sole goal of doing this, but when the surveyors come out, they say, wow, you know, you've got a quality improvement program mm-hmm. that absolutely uh, has, has is uh, is doing what it should be doing, trying to identify ways to improve the quality of care that you're yeah. providing. And a huge concern that can be brought about by this is nurses being afraid to stay nurses and doctors and, you know, people that are coming, that are just starting school and thinking, I don't know, do I ever really want to take that chance? I mean, obviously nobody would ever want to live with the fact that a, a mistake they made killed somebody. That's the worst punishment. But this just brings it that one more step. Yeah, you know that, when the story, that it like, seems to be the nurse more than I've heard other stories, and it's like it's not the doctor, it's not yeah. the if it's a um, a prison situation I'd heard of recently, and it's it's the nurse they hold responsible, and yeah. and if we lose more staff, more mistakes are going to happen. We're going to get totally the opposite. Uh, right. result that, of what we want. And we want to encourage people to come into the profession. And we have already heard anecdotally that, you know, some nurses, you know, people in nursing school that have heard about this case are seriously questioning whether they want to go into a profession where they aren't necessarily, um, let's face it, you know, it's not mm-hmm. a glamorous job. No, but it's very, tr- it's, it's something that any polls for the past however many years, nurses have been the most trusted yeah. profession. Now, if that changes... Even more that, than accountants. That can be more, I <laughs> can't believe it. <laughs> Hard to believe. But I think that, you know, kind of hurts you. you yeah, yeah. It feels bad to feel like, you know, if people start not trusting their nurse. Right. Well said. I So I'm, I'm hoping that we all take something from this and uh, I... Um, you can see how passionate both Sue and I are about this particular case. And we've listened to quite a number of podcasts even where uh, mm-hmm. people have, uh, I mean, boy, we're not alone in being very passionate about yeah. this. So I really do encourage you to talk about it, um, you know, openly in your in staff meetings uh, when you have time um, and make sure that your program, your quality improvement program is designed in such a way that it encourages the reporting of things, especially near misses. Oh, for sure. That's, yep. This really points I thank you for bringing that up earlier about this. Hopefully, all we ever have is a near miss where somebody mm-hmm. catches it before it happens. Yeah. And, and that's isn't why embarrassed to say, oh, I almost did this. Yeah, that's right. Because it's going to happen to somebody else if it happened to you, most likely. That's so, right. So, you know, catch it before something bad happens. So we have uh, had another interesting uh, situation occur this week is that um, 
um, well, uh, last week. We have a brand new center in uh, Western New York that is doing uh, urological procedures, and they have a bunch of Carl Stortz urological endoscopes. And unfortunately, on April fourth, twenty twenty two, the U.S. Uh, Food and Drug Administration, in as part of evaluating the risk of patient infections and contamination issues associated with reprocessed urological endoscopes, um, indicated that there was a voluntary recall and issued an urgent field safety notice to instruct users to discontinue all high-level disinfection methods for all effective urologic endoscopes and to discontinue liquid chemical sterilization for most of the affected urological endoscopes. So uh, this is a big deal. A lot of uh, organizations, and it's not just surgery centers that are doing this, but, you know, offices, uh, office-based surgery, you know, uh, uh, and hospitals uh, are using these scopes. Um, and I, I know that they specifically mentioned the Carl Stortz uh, uh, endoscopes, but, you know, be, uh, I wouldn't be a bit surprised if this goes beyond uh, those particular endoscopes. So what this means is the affected endoscope should be sterilized after each use. Instead of using high-level disinfection, you're going to have to use sterilization by an appropriate sterilization method recommended in the instructions for use. And, of course, there has been revised instructions for use for these endoscopes. And the FDA wants to ensure that healthcare providers and users are aware of the change in the reprocessing methods for certain neurological endoscopes. Um, and that the FDA will continue to monitor reports of patient infections or contamination issues with urological endoscopes and work with manufacturers on adequate reprocessing methods and instructions. So if you do have these scopes in your organization, you're going to want to make sure that you follow the instructions from the recall notice from Carl Stortz. Can't use any high-level disinfection methods or liquid chemical sterilization to reprocess affected endoscopes, and you're going to have to sterilize these endoscopes after each use by using sterilization methods recommended in the instructions for use specific to each device as revised by the uh, by the manufacturers. And be aware that Carl Stortz will provide updated instructions for use for affected urological endoscopes. Do not use damaged devices or those that have failed a leak test as they could be a potential source of contamination. You're going to need to develop schedules for routine in, uh, inspection and regular maintenance as specified in the manufacturer's instructions. You should have been doing that already. Mm-hmm. And discuss the benefits and risks associated with procedures involved uh, involving reprocessed urological endoscopes with your patients. So uh, a lot going on there. Um, hopefully you already know about this or have seen the, uh, the recall notices if you have these scopes, but uh, at the very least keep an eye out for this. Uh, this had a huge impact in this particular client of ours because they had just purchased all of these things. They had just started operations. I believe they did one day of, of service when they had to rip out all of their high-level mm-hmm. disinfection equipment and replace it with uh, uh, much more expensive. And not e- it isn't even the cost involved here. It's just they had to redesign the whole Mm -hmm. sterilization room. They had to turn it into a sterilization room from high level uh, disinfecting. Mm -hmm. They had to retrain all of their staff. They actually, uh, they found that the the, uh, new um, sterilizers were so heavy that they had to be spread out over a wider distance oh, no. in the uh, in the room uh, because the floor wouldn't hold the weight of this. Oh, oh. In, enormous consequences uh, to this. So uh, keep that in mind as you uh, uh, consider what you're going to do. So I have an update on the No Surprises Act. Um, there was updated FAQs issued on April 6th. Uh, here's a few reminders just to kind of uh, remind you of what the No Surprises Act is. Um, it is uh, an act that was uh, implemented uh, in, on January 1st that is providing protections for 
uh, patients against uh, a surprise bill that they would receive from a provider uh, for uh, services that were rendered to them where they, they were not made aware up front as to how much those that procedure was going to cost. So providers and healthcare facilities must publicly disclose patient protections against balanced billing. Uh, which means that you have to post, sign, and provide and or provide uh, a document to them so that they know what their rights are. And the providers must give a good faith estimate of expected charges to uninsured and self-pay patients at least three business days before a scheduled service or upon request. So hopefully you've already implemented these these systems. This uh, was uh, effective on January 1st. And the good faith estimate is a component of the medical record and is considered part of a patient's medical record and must be maintained in the same manner as the patient's medical record. So that is a difference. I think in in many cases they didn't know that it had to be actually Mm -hmm. put into the medical record and maintained in whatever method you have, like an electronic medical or, uh, or paper. A good faith estimate must only include items or services reasonably expected to be furnished in conjunction with the primary item or service. Providers do not have to include charges beyond those that are reasonably expected to be scheduled with the primary item or service. So I'm going to provide a link to these updated um, FAQs so that you can read through them. We don't go into a lot of detail here. This is this is clearly one of those areas that you need to get some additional help from uh, your billing company if you have mm-hmm. one or from your attorney as you try to figure out how you're going to report this information to your patients. And again, this has been effect, in effect since January, so I'm sure that all of you have already implemented these systems, but uh, if you you, uh, but but you might want to read the FAQs, the updated FAQs, to get some more information. And don't forget the ASC quality reporting deadline is coming up. Refer to episode 143 for more information. And the reporting deadline is May sixteenth, twenty twenty two. And we've had we've had some uh, good feedback on that episode. So if you are at all confused about ASC quality reporting, uh, go back and listen to it. It is a long episode because what we did, Sue, if you remember, is we actually took a recording of uh, the discussion we had in our finance and accounting mm-hmm. seminar back in, uh, <clears throat> yep. I think, December of twenty twenty one, and uh, put the whole recording into that episode. So there was a very thorough discussion of that. I also want to remind you. I don't think we've talked about this in any detail uh, up until now, but the NHSN uh, reporting deadline is going to be in August. So just a reminder, in the CMS 2022 quality reporting measures, ASCs must report a new measure referred to as ASC 20, better known as COVID-19 vaccination coverage among healthcare personnel, and it has to be reported through the National Healthcare Safety Network, or better known as NHSN, which, as we all know, is part of the CDC. And to comply, ASCs must select a week each month to collect data to be submitted to NHSN on a quarterly basis. So this is a requirement uh, that you must meet in order to maintain your ASC quality reporting uh, requirements. And the deadline for the first report is going to be August fifteenth, 2022, for the first quarter of 2022. Uh, and, uh, so that's going to mean that you're actually going to be providing three data sets, January, February, and March of 2022, one week in each of those months. You're going to be reporting by August 15th, 2022. 
And then the next reporting period, which will be for quarter two of 2022, will be November 1st, 2022. And so there's a lot of information available on the internet about this, and we've already talked about it a little bit, but I'm just going to kind of give you a brief overview. So the data collected is going to be as follows. The denominator is the number of healthcare personnel eligible to work in the ASC for at least one day during the self-selected week, whatever week you choose for each month, excluding persons with contraindications to COVID-19 vaccination. And the numerator is going to be the cumulative number of healthcare personnel eligible to work in the ASC for at least one day during the self-selected week and who is who received a complete vaccination course against COVID-19 using the U.S. Food and Drug Administration authorized or FDA approved vaccine for COVID-19. A complete vaccination course is defined under the specific FDA authorization and may require multiple doses or regular revaccination. The healthcare personnel that are tracked for NHSN purposes are as follows. Employees, in other words, people that are on your facility payroll. This would include licensed independent practitioners, physicians, advanced practice nurses, physicians assistants, adult students, trainees, and volunteers, and of course, any of your other staff. And it will also include physicians like NMDs or DOs, advanced practice nurses and physicians assistants uh, who are uh, affiliated with the healthcare facility but are not directly employed by it. This would include, for example, all of your credentialed staff. Uh, and it's regardless of the clinical responsibility or patient contact. So just because a, uh, uh, a physician uh, is not actually in direct contact or a PA is not in direct contact with a patient, they still would have to be reported as part of this NHSN. Post-residency fellows are also included in this category. It also includes adult students and trainees and volunteers, uh, including, you know, medical, nursing, and other healthcare professional students, interns, medical residents, or volunteers aged 18 or older who are affiliated with the healthcare facility but are not directly employed. And this last bullet is kind of the difficult one. Persons providing care, treatment, or services at the facility through a contract who do not fall in any other denominator category. So for example, Sue, you and I go on site and visit clients. We are um, kind of consultants. We're a little bit different than consultants. We provide, you know, ongoing regulatory compliance services to our centers. So we fall into this category also. So, and again, this isn't mandating. I mean, there is a mandate, of course, for mm -hmm. vaccination, this but this, reporting. the NHSN requirement is not uh, mandating that you have the vaccination. It is required, as you said, it is required that we report on the number of people that are vaccinated vaccinated through NHSN. So we're going to provide an enrollment link on our website as well as a protocol for preparing the monthly report. So again, the big takeaway is make sure that you are signed up for NHSN. Uh, go to the enrollment link at our uh, in our show notes here. Uh, make sure you follow the protocol for preparing the monthly report. And remember that you need to do your first report by August 15, 2022. I've, I've actually talked to quite a number of our clients who have already uh, signed up and are starting to do the reporting just so that they can be ahead of the game there. So, wow, Sue, this uh, segment is already over 35 minutes long <laughs> here. But we do have some more great information in our second segment. So in our focus segment today, we're going to talk about a little bit about coding and billing and how it would affect surgery centers. So uh, we're going to take a short break, come back, and we're going to talk about coding and billing.
Our listener patron program, also known as ASC Central, has really taken off over the past 12 months, and we are so grateful to all of our over 100 members. Our patron members help support our efforts here on the podcast and get a number of great benefits also. The ASC Podcast with John Gailey is the longest-running podcast dedicated exclusively to the ASC industry. ASC Central provides members with a wealth of management tools and resources, including regular members-only Zoom sessions with John and other members to discuss relevant topics, quarterly Zoom meetings where we update patron members with important issues in the ASC industry, periodic study sessions for leaders that are planning on taking the CASC or CAPE exam, and access to a large database that includes federal regulations, interpretive guidelines, and the state regulations, checklists for administrators and nurse managers, example meeting minute templates, example policies and procedures, budgeting and financial projection tools, risk assessments and example forms, and much, much more. Members also get discounts on books written by John Gailey, ranging from $10 to $80 per book, and can even schedule a personalized mock survey with John and save over $1,000. For more information and to access this additional content, please visit ASCPodcast.com or ASC-Central.com. So in our focus segment this week, I just want to have a conversation about coding and billing. We don't always talk about this, Sue, during our thing. We focus so much on regulations. Uh, but coding and billing issues have come up just quite a bit because of a lot of turnover uh, in uh, business office staff over the last year. So for a lot more information, don't forget our June 2022 ASC Finance Accounting and Reimbursement Seminar. More information is available on our website. Often people forget that coding and billing uh, in an ambulatory surgery Center is very different than coding and billing in physicians' practice. And a big coding mistake can cost your ASC a lot of money. And not keeping up with billing can cause significant payment de- delays. In other words, cause cash flow problems. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the arguments that I hear is, oh, you know, don't worry if your coder goes out, we'll just use the code that the doctor uh, is using for his office. And that is a big no-no. Uh, you have to code specifically to the surgery center based upon the uh, the operative report that mm-hmm. has been provided to you by the physician. So you need to have somebody on your staff that is going to be uh, using the appropriate coding uh, rules to determine what the CPD-4 code is, what the ICD-10 codes are. Uh, So the big question is, what can an administrator do to make sure that they act quickly when problems arise? So here's just a a number of of suggestions that I want to make to you for keeping on top of coding and billing. Now, this is a responsibility that, you know, most administrators have, business office managers have. But in many surgery centers today, the nurse administrator is also responsible for coding and billing. So, and they probably don't have a lot of experience. Sue, you kind of mentioned that. I don't believe in your nursing school they talked about coding and billing. Is that correct? Nope. Nope. <laughs> so, uh, I know that, uh, and it's not something that you particularly want to be involved in. But if you do want to get into administration in ASC, it's certainly something you have to think about. So here's some suggestions. First of all, you want to know, get to know the term days and receivable, which is the average amount of time that it takes from when the uh, procedure occurs to when you actually collect that. And there's a formula for doing that. And there's a lot of uh, good guidelines on the internet and from previous episodes where we talk about it. But you want to look at those days and receivable reports and look at a trend. For example, a good uh, example or a good guideline for you is about 35 days and receivables. In other words, you want to make sure that 
that on average you're collecting your uh, payment from the insurance company from the patient within 35 days after the date of surgery. Uh, and you want to look at a trend. You know, what maybe last month it was 36 days. The month before it was 45 days. So you're getting better. Of course, the other situation is where that number continues to rise. And you don't want to go too many months with that increase occurring before you intervene on that. And you also want to look at monthly aging schedules. And aging is, um, is a, a summary of, of, uh, how much is owed for cases that are over a certain day, day, t- uh, um, a number of days. And you don't want to allow uh, the aging to get too old because we know mm-hmm. that the older uh, those that age is, the older, the longer it takes for you to get money from the insurance company and from the patient, the less likely you're actually going to be able to collect it. Mm-hmm. So you want to specifically look at those oldest claims first. Uh, as well as keeping on top of the younger ones to make sure they never get into that old category. You also want to have a process in place in your organization to collect copays and deductibles up front if the insurance plan allows you to do that. The more you collect up front, uh, the, the more likely that you're not going to have a problem later on. It's, as an accountant, I'll just have to say, I'd much rather have the money up front and refund it to the patient rather than the other way around. And I know that kind of runs contrary to what we want to do as, uh, as patients. We don't want to pay until afterwards. Uh, but, uh, but we know that, uh, it, it doesn't take very long. I, you mm-hmm. know, so every time I go to the doctor, I instantly forget whether I paid or did not pay for that, yeah. that service. Uh, and that's just a very common, you know, human mm-hmm. thing. And for, you know, for our parents, for example, who spend half their lives, it seems, at the doctor's mm-hmm. office, it's easy to forget uh, what you did two, three months ago. And another recommendation I have is sit down with your billing staff on a weekly basis to review all claims over 90 days old to make sure that they're being followed up on. So this isn't something you wait till the end of the month. You want to be on top of this constantly. And staff that, uh, you know, that, that uh, see that you're taking an active interest in that are going to make sure that they're on top of, of these claims. So definitely a regular, at least a weekly review of these claims is, is advisable. Uh, require your staff to enter every intro interaction with the patient and the insurance company in your software notes. So if you have decent software, any major software packages out there are going to give you the ability to write notes with regard to outstanding claims. If your software doesn't allow it, first of all, go find other software. But if not, then somebody should be keeping very extensive notes, typing it into a computer, into a uh, notebook, whatever, uh, so that you can review those notes later to make sure somebody's on top of it. And make sure that you don't allow your billing staff to write off balances without administrative approval. So a staff that uh, doesn't have very good ethics mm-hmm. uh, could very well write off the balance rather than following up on those balances if they uh, get out of control and make themselves look better. And it's very important that you perform regular coding and billing audits. Our dear friend Christina Benton, for example, uh, owns a company that does that. I recommend her highly. And there are many other organizations out there that can do that. Something that's important to realize with coding and billing audits audits is that they're not only making sure that you don't get yourself into trouble legally, but might actually provide some opportunities for you to improve your coding and billing. I find that just as often as you find a coding and billing problem, or actually more frequently when you're doing a billing and coding audit, you find opportunities for improving your uh, your reimbursement from those uh, auditors. 
Now, we've talked about this a lot in our finance and accounting seminars. It is extremely important that you maintain your books, at least in some way, on an accrual basis of accounting. What we need here is that we want to track our accounts receivable. Many accounting systems out there, many of uh, many of the physicians' practices, maintain their, their books on what we call a cash base. In other words, they don't track how much is owed to them in their accounts receivable. They only track how much money they bring in, which means that it allows organizations or, or billing people to kind to get away without doing ongoing follow-up on their accounts receivable. If you maintain an accrual basis of accounting, you're going to have an ongoing record of how much is owed to you by your patients, and it will force you to write off balances that are not collectible and be able to track how much money you're spending or how much money you're losing uh, by not following up on that accounts receivable. Uh, and accounting re- accounts receivable is an extremely important thing to track and trend in your organization. It really all comes down to hiring the right people and keeping them happy. You need to make sure that you act quickly when you have turnover. So don't wait for a couple months to replace somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, hire and don't just jump at the first person that uh, that you find uh, that has some coding and billing experience. Make sure that that individual, if at all possible, has specific ASC coding and experience, coding and billing experience. And if they don't. If you have no other choice, uh, then make sure you send them right away to, you know, some training on this. There's a lot of good resources out there for training. We provide some of it as part of our, uh, our finance and accounting seminars that we do twice a year. You might want to consider hiring an outside company to hire, to cover your coding when your coder is out on vacation or when they leave. You might want to definitely consider cross-training staff in your organization so somebody can step in pretty quickly. Again, I hope this whole trend, uh, the, this, the message I'm getting across is you don't wait. Yeah, be prepared. Be prepared, right. Mm-hmm. You don't, you don't, uh, wait for, uh, you know, to, to replace this. This is something you have to have right away. You mm-hmm. want to have a backup plan. And that really gets to our discussion with Scott. Megason. So during the, uh, I think it was October, so we were out at the Ohio State of Conference and I mm-hmm. had an opportunity to uh, interview my dear f- uh, friend, Scott Megason, who is uh, who was at the Ohio State Association meeting. So we're going to play that interview now because we talked about uh, what to do when these things happen. We even talked about the possibility of doing a uh, disaster drill. Mm-hmm. I mean, because in my view as an accountant, this is a disaster when yeah. when your billing mm-hmm. person leaves. Uh, and he also gives a little bit of update on what's going on in the, uh, the coding and billing world. I know this interview is is a good five months uh, old, but what we talked about really is even relevant today. Mm -hmm. So let's listen to uh, this interview, and then we'll come back after our break and talk about upcoming events. So this is John Gailey. I'm here with Scott Magison. Um, Scott, you and I have known each other a long time. So everybody probably knows you from emails that they probably get, right? Uh, probably. <laughs> We've been sending out a newsletter on coding topics yeah. for 10, 12 years now. That's right. And uh, and you are regular. We just saw each other down in Texas um, uh, at the Texas Association. Um, you're, are you going to New York? Are you? I, I, I asked this question. I'm not going to be able to do New York this year, but I'm hoping to add that into our schedule in f- for next year. In the spring in particular. Mm-hmm. That would be great. Well, thanks. We're here at the Ohio State Association uh, meeting in uh, Columbus, Ohio. It's uh, been a, a fun day so far. Uh, Sue just joined me. I'm just here now. Joined I just us got now. back. Had to plug in my computer. <laughs> 
So, uh, Scott, you and I have been talking. We've been talking for a while about what we would uh, bring you on the podcast to talk about. And uh, we were we we're laughing because I think we talked in Texas about a topic, but neither of us can remember what it was that we were talking about. So, obviously, probably wasn't excited about what we just talked about. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, with coding, there's not a lot that is exciting. <laughs> that's, that's too. <laughs> it's very necessary, but it's not typically exciting. That's right. For some reason, you, you don't have those crowds showing up at your uh, things saying, I, I need your service right away. Not anymore. Which, which brings me to the point we were talking about. It was kind of interesting. I, I don't remember how we got into it, but you made a point that uh, we all have disaster plans and surgery centers. We, you know, Sue and I preach it on the podcast. We preach it with our clients that, you know, get in your disaster plan. What happens if your generator goes down? What happens if your water goes down? What happens if, uh, you know, a computer system goes down? But uh, you, you said something earlier today, like what happens when your coder quits? And and I guess you couldn't really call that a disaster, but in terms of, of an emergency, it certainly is something important. So I thought that would be a great topic to talk about, you know, preparing yourself for it and, and also what the ramifications of even losing a day's worth of coding could be. So first of all, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you on board. So uh, tell us a, you know, a little bit about your thoughts about, you know, how you plan for that and, you know, how companies such as yours obviously can uh, can fit in, you know, even if it's temporary. I mean, you can you can either decide this is it, I, I, I want to have a service permanently or, you know, I just need something on, on, on a temporary basis. Well, thanks for having me, John. You know, one of the things in dealing with clients, I have, all of them have these three-inch binders that show what to do in the event of a, right. an emergency, a natural disaster, yeah. whatever. But I talk to people quite frequently, mm-hmm. and usually on Monday morning yes. at 8 o'clock, <laughs> that say, my coder had a car accident this yeah. weekend. My coder was painting her house and fell off a ladder mm-hmm. and can't work for the indefinite future, what right. can I do? <laughs> right, right. And how quickly can you and, do it? <laughs> yes, and how quickly can you help me? Yeah. Um, and, you know, companies like ours, we're set up to where we can handle short-term right. emergency problems like that. But, you know, typically there's still a lot of paperwork. You've got to get a business associates agreement yeah. in place. You've got to get some kind of a, you know, at least a letter of agreement or mm-hmm. a, if not a more formal contract in place. So it's good that people recognize something's like that and mm-hmm. uh, are willing to take the preemptive measure of having that type of relationship established before they need it. Right. Um, and I think that's the pertinent thing. Whether you hire a company like yours or, I, I mean, I guess I could say, you know, if you're part of a practice, you know, for example, you might, uh, as part of your plan, say, okay, this is my coder now, but it's not, if you, they were to go out, you know, we'll bring somebody over in the practice. I, I don't particularly care what your plan is. What's important is that you have a plan. And, and, to be honest, in your biz, in in the business of coding, it is so difficult right now to get coders, uh, let alone get somebody that's experienced in ASCs. Right, and one of the things that I run into, and, and I talk to coders frequently that say, "I haven't had a vacation in six months," or "I haven't had a vacation in two years." And yeah. The first thing you're like, "Well, why not?" And they go, "Well, I don't want to have to get caught up on everything that happens while I'm gone." Right. Right. <laughs> And, you know, establishing a relationship with somebody like MD Strategies can help you uh, bridge a short-term gap mm-hmm. um, or in the event of a more dire situation like a, um, I had a, a group uh, last year that called me. The lady said her coder was painting her house and fell off a ladder and broke yeah. both of her arms. 
which you know is obviously a very tragic <laughs> very situation, yeah. and I, yeah, and but, probably not able to code during that and, period of time. Yeah, couldn't use a computer during <laughs> yeah. that period of time, and I think I forget it was about six weeks if I remember yeah. correctly. But uh, you know, obviously, most uh, ASCs cannot go six weeks without being able to submit some bills. Well, um, and let's talk about that for a second because that's something that I'm, I'm passionate about. We're uh, doing a couple of sessions. I think I mentioned in New Jersey, I did a session recently about, you know, what do you do when you get into an AR problem? And one of the things that I talked about is what every extra day in receivable is worth to you. You know, it's basically take your total net revenue divide it by the number of, you know, days, and that is your daily revenue. Mm -hmm. And every day that you're not coding, every day that you're not billing, means that you're losing that. Now, not permanently, but you're not getting that cash in. So, mm -hmm. you know, think about it. If you're if you're uh, billing out net, you know, $25,000 a day, one week, you know, five days, and actually you have to add the weekend there because mm -hmm. obviously nobody's coding on the weekend – is going to equate to, you know, in this case, $125,000 that's being held up for, you know, seven days there that, mm -hmm. that you don't get that cash until, you know, one week later than, than what you expected. Right. And frequently it can be longer because yeah. when the coder comes that's back, generous. they've got yeah. to get caught up. So right. it frequently can double yeah. um, that length of time. And if you're borrowing money on a line of credit, yeah. um, you're paying, you're actually you're paying, paying to pay interest yeah. on to keep the bills paid. Uh, I have found that a lot of employees don't like to work when they don't get paid. Yeah. So if the cash it's flow a sad thing for business, those of us the business owners, yes, yeah, I don't yes, understand it. it. <laughs> uh, the sad, you know, the uh, workflow there can uh, yeah. can get impeded when the employees get uh, upset about not getting paid. So you want to try to minimize those situations when all possible. So I think there's two sides of it. There's that emergency side we just mm -hmm. talked about. Well, let's talk about just the daily. You mentioned you know people being on vacation. That alone, you know, we've heard this attitude. You've heard this attitude. Well, I'll just wait till they get back. And just talk a little bit about what's wrong with that analysis. Well, and again, it just kind of amplifies what we were talking about. Uh, if an employee takes a week, mm -hmm. which most employees get at least a week, if not two, right. but, uh, you know, if they want to go on a cruise or they want to go somewhere that's mm -hmm. a little bit extended and you don't file any claims while that person's gone yeah. because you don't have that resource. You're back to borrowing money, possibly on the line of credit. To or going back, the worst thing in the world, going back to the doctors and say, you're not getting a distribution this week or yes. uh, or even worse, I need to borrow some money from you mm -hmm. to we get through. Yeah. Cash call. So That's usually that. not a very good thing for your career. Yeah, they don't uh, They don't typically like that. So yeah. it, uh, you know, having a relationship like that is where you have mm -hmm. a resource in – just, you know, if it's overflow work, uh, we're heading into the fourth quarter of the year. Right. And that typically during the time I've been doing this, it will increase anywhere from 10 to 15% over what you're doing yeah. on a, you know, a prior quarter during the fourth quarter. And as we get yeah. closer to the holidays, it ramps up even more. So at a time when people are taking more vacation or are out, absolutely. and again, that's people want to be off some, yeah. during some of those times. And you know, it's it's bad for employee morale when you tell people no vacation before Christmas. Yes, no vacations <laughs> in December, whatever. Which I unfortunately yeah. I frequently have to do as well, just yeah. because. Well, you got to keep your employees happy still. Yeah, but. you want to try to. You know, yeah. It's hard to keep everybody happy. Hard to keep all the employees happy and all the clients happy at the same time. <laughs> yeah. So it's a juggling act for the managers in that situation. Talk a little bit about right now where we are with coding. You know, getting coders, hiring coders, because I think that's a challenge 
uh, I mean, uh, many organizations that are going to hire companies to, you know, basically outsource. And we actually, a previous episode here, we we're talking about outsourcing and how outsourcing is becoming very popular now because the nice thing about outsourcing is you, you do hopefully do away with that situation in which somebody leaves you suddenly and you're, you're suddenly stuck. You know, like if you're outsourcing regulatory compliance like us, you don't have to worry about that nurse leaving. You know, we're, we're covering you during that whole period of time. Same things, same thing with coding. But, but often right now, I, I think we're running into a situation where it's hard to hire people. Is that what's happening in coding too? What's, what, where are we are with uh, coding and, and having people? I mean, I know a lot of it's regional, you know, like you might live in East Podunk. Hopefully there is no such place as Podunk. Otherwise I'm in big troubles with our listener, but you might be in a, in a very remote area and you don't have a coder. So talk about two things. First, of all, yours my passion about making sure that you hire coders that are certified, as well as just getting coders in general right now. Where are we in the industry? Uh, you know, it's a tight market, mm-hmm. definitely. Um, I think we're still facing a little bit of restrictions on with people getting extended unemployment benefits yeah. and things like that. Lower level coders are newer, less mm-hmm. experienced coders. Uh, don't make a whole lot more than some unemployment, you know, yeah. than unemployment can make in some cases. Yeah. And, um, you know, also some of the other things of coders going into an office and they don't feel comfortable in that, in this environment right. now. Uh, some of them have retired, which is pulling some of the other coders up mm-hmm. a level, which is not always a bad thing. But, you know, in our particular case, one of the most difficult things we find is getting experienced coders in multi-specialty. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can find a good orthopedic coder that knows nothing about urology yeah. and GI. Right. Or, uh, you know, you can find a good uh, GI coder, but they don't know anything about ENT right. or urology or something like that. So. My best example is I can code eye cases. I've been doing eye cases for 17 years. I used to teach coding. Yeah. But Show me orthopedics. There's no way. I don't even understand half the words, you know, yeah. in that. Uh, and and it's getting even more so now with, uh, as I'm sure you know, one of the big trends in ASCs is cardiovascular. Yeah. And yeah, we know nothing about and it. Nobody does. Yeah, right, you know, right. it's it's a little bit of a, a, a blind, leading the blind kind of thing with uh, some of this stuff in an ASC setting because yeah. it just hasn't been done before. So, so let's talk about um, the issue of uh, – the experience level of coders and getting certified. We, you and I were talking earlier, you know. Uh, so one of the arguments when somebody leaves the ASC, the coder leaves the ASC, you know, the owners will say, well, I'll tell you what, I'll just lend you my coder from the office. You can use her for a while. What do you think about that answer? Um, Be- and, of course, what they're going to say is, because our codes are better anyway, we might as well just use the code that the office is using, right? What could go wrong? <laughs> uh, well, you know, it's uh, – and in some cases, that's perfectly fine. <laughs> yeah. Um, most but cases, it it's tends not. to have some issues. Yeah. The, and, and talk about that because coding for an ASC is different than in the office. I mean, it's not wholly different, but but it does take different sets, which is why you have different certifications. Right. There. I mean, the facility fee coding is a little bit different. Uh, you know, it should be very close as far as I mean the primary. Right. Uh, procedure codes and the primary diagnosis code should be the same. But there are a few uh, exceptions where the doctor's office can bill for things that the facility cannot. Right. Um, and modifiers are too a big Some thing. of the modifiers yeah. are different and so forth, yeah. And, um, you know, we see a lot of things where people are just not. And particularly when they come in from an office, they're maybe not having the most recent yeah. material. Um, recently had a case um, – 
one of our clients is in the process of buying a facility mm-hmm. and we did a due diligence audit and the I don't know if they, they were facility coders or I don't know who did the coding, but they were using some codes from 2018. Yeah. Or I should say they were using something oh, that was superseded in 2018 yeah. and some procedures that are now bundled that they were still unbundling. Yeah. And led to a probably a slight inflation of their revenues oh. at this particular facility. So I don't know how that's going to wash out for my yeah. client. Um, but... Uh, yeah, you know, there are things like that that keeping up to date, and we spend mm-hmm. uh, as I write the checks for all the books and the yeah. uh, different <laughs> materials that we purchase. It's you know quite expensive to stay up to speed on everything, right. and you know that's one of the things that partnering with a company is. Yeah. Even if uh, you know one of the things that we will do is kind of a hotline service, mm-hmm. where if you don't use us and a full capacity for all your coding if you just want to get uh, yeah. a second opinion on something to send it in and that's it, great it helps it's a retainer type service or, or fee for typically it's fee per uh, event okay and yeah. that's, uh, I didn't know that that's good yeah it's um, you know and I mean we will price it accordingly depending yeah. on but it's you know pretty inexpensive when you look at the fact of um, do I get am I capturing all the revenue I should right. be capturing on this thing uh, Especially if you're running into something that you hadn't coded before or a new experience, because that's going to happen. I think we're we're finding a lot with total joints right now. This I, I don't I don't code anymore. I, I I could never teach like I did before coding. I, I mean I'm so far behind that. Um, but I can't imagine that coding for totals is uh, easy. Um, again, I'm not a coder. I know. I can't <laughs> yeah, put you on the spot there. I can't speak to uh, you know. And from what I understand, if you know, uh, so many times with. Yeah be it total joints or whatever, if the documentation is right, my understanding from my managers is -hmm. that total joints are less complicated than some other procedures if, again, if the documentation is right. Right, right, right. And that's one issue you run into frequently is that there are uh, varying standards of documentation. So sometimes you get all the information in a nice, concise little report, and other times you get the documentation and you're not sure what the doctor did. A lot of our audience, our administrators and nurse managers here, talk a little bit about the importance of uh, – we're we're here at the Ohio State Association Conference here. Talk about the importance of getting the coders out of the office or virtually. I mean, it doesn't really matter how you do it, but getting some annual training for them. How important do you think that is? Uh, Well, in this day and age, it's very important. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, we're about to – I have not seen personally, but here at the end of this week, we're going to have a whole new set of ICD-10 codes that kick in. That would be fun. And uh, then, of course, in January, we'll have a whole new set of – or not a whole new set, but Mm -hmm. a a number of additions to the current set of CPT codes and modifiers. And uh, one of the things right now that is crazy – are additional HixPix codes yeah, yeah. because those were, they're getting new products approved. They're getting new you know implants for mm-hmm. different things approved and keeping uh, up to speed on what products have a payable code now versus mm-hmm. you know what's still experimental or what's still considered experimental and has to be reported unlisted is a you know very important thing. Yeah, and of course you don't want to go the other way where you report the payable code first before it gets approved is right. uh, when you should still be using the unlisted. So so do you have a feel for what's going on right now with uh, auditing, you know, activity, you know, from the government of uh, looking at, uh, at claims right now? No, I wish I could. Yeah. The, 
I haven't really seen. I know we have clients in varying parts of the country, um, and some of the commercial carriers are yeah. a little more aggressive. Right, in even auditing. in Medicare. Yeah. Um, I have not seen really a lot of aggressive Medicare auditing in yeah. an ASC setting. Uh, we have. Have you seen it in the past? Like, how would you equate it? I know you. You, know, you probably know a little bit about it, how, the frequency. Is it because there just isn't a lot of activity right now? Do you feel like that might have been in the past or? Um, I think personal feeling strictly, uh, you know, of course, what, four or five years ago, everyone was all up in yeah. arms about rack audits. Right, right. Uh, and there's, we still get a question here and there that a rack audit was done. Yeah. Uh, my personal opinion is that in particularly in Medicare, uh, there's so much more opportunity to get recoupment yeah. in a hospital yeah, setting yeah, exactly. as opposed to the revenues uh, in your typical ASC, right? That that's a good point because the, we've been seeing that happening uh, nationally. Uh, Medicare mm-hmm. being, from what I understand, understaffed, right? Uh, particularly as it relates to auditors, uh, there's more opportunity for recoupment going after a big hospital that may have billions of dollars in revenue versus an ASC that may have you know not even ten million a year in revenue or something like well, that. Well, especially so. since they extrapolate that data, so you right. know, extrapolating. Uh, Something that happened in a surgery center over the number of cases there compared to what you would have in a hospital would be, you know, a lot more money from the hospital. Very good point. Lastly, just talk a little bit about, you know, hiring somebody to come in on a periodic basis to uh, look at at your coding. I know that's a service you offer. How important do you think that is, you know, regularly doing some coding audits? Um, I think it's very important. I like to tell people if they're unsure about it, it's kind of like that annual physical you get. You may not want to do it and it may not always Parts of it may not be pleasant when you right. have to actually go in to get your uh, physical, but yeah. uh, if you get a clean bill of health, it's kind of self-assuring and reassuring to know that you know everything yeah. is good and I can proceed on. Um, we have clients that do quarterly audits. We mm-hmm. have clients that do biannual audits. So right. um, they have, if they feel every two years is sufficient and they don't have a change in coding then, you know, that's probably is sufficient, assuming everything right. was good previously. I've always told people that, uh, you know, if you get a new coder in, even, yeah. you know, they th- you think I wouldn't let them go more than 90 days just double check. to double check. Because yeah. it's too important to the cash flow of the facility to go down the wrong trail. Right. Uh, you don't want to have to come back you know, a month later or, or six months later and have to refile 20% of your claims because you found out your coder mm-hmm. was missing something. Right. And I'll add uh, to our listeners also, uh, keep in mind that your corporate compliance plan might actually state uh, that you have to have periodic uh, coding audits done. Uh, I find that, you know, periodically people, have you know, implement this uh, corporate compliance plan, never read it. And it says something like on an annual basis or on a quarterly basis, you know, I'm going to do coding audits. So certainly, now there is no requirement that you do this. There is a requirement that you have a corporate compliance plan. There's no requirement that you specify a time frame. But many of those uh, cookie cutter um, compliance plans out there actually tell it tell you that they have to do it and, and people fail to do that. So good right. thing to check in. Too. Yeah, I've, I've seen, you know, and it can vary depending on if you're part of a, you know, a group that has 250 facilities or right. um, if you're a group that has, you know, 10 facilities, it right. could be, or an independent facility, depending on how you're, you know, how you're structured. Mm-hmm. Uh, typically, I find that a lot of the smaller facilities, the independents, are the ones that don't necessarily get an audit done 
frequently, and I think they're fre- yeah. they're the ones that probably need to have one right. done more. Uh, a big company typically has a corporate policy in place, and there's a regional manager or right. someone that's in charge of making sure mm-hmm. that you've had a an audit done, you know, within the last year or the last right. six months, whatever the case may be. Scott, um, Scott Magison with uh, MD Strategies. As always, it's a pleasure talking. First time that you've been on the podcast, I should point that out. But uh, yes. you and I talk a lot, and, uh, and I'm sure we'll see each other at some conferences. This has been a pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, John. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. In this segment, we provide an update on upcoming topics for the podcast, our upcoming virtual conferences, and upcoming speaking engagements for John and his staff. So we're going to talk, I don't know when we're going to fit this in, but an annual review of the OIG report on the compliance of accrediting organizations with mm-hmm. the conditions for coverage, something we try to do every year, and mm-hmm. uh, we've been holding off on this one for a while. We're also going to have another segment shortly, uh, hopefully within the next week, where we're going to talk about staffing challenges that surgery centers have and some mm-hmm. suggestions from our uh, patron members as to you know what they think are some good ideas there. Yep. And some upcoming training programs. The Indiana Federation of Ambulatory Surgical Centers Spring Conference and Trade Show is April 22nd, 2022 in Carmel, Indiana. And John, you'll be there. I'll be there. I'll be heading out on uh, Thursday and uh, be there for uh, Friday. And I th- I, for Friday, I think it's a holiday conference on Friday. Mm-hmm. So uh, if you're out there, make sure you uh, say hi to me. And ASCA 2022 will be in Dallas, Texas at the end of this month, April 27th through the 30th. I'll be speaking on a special track for ASC administrators. And for more information, it's still not too late to sign up. Go to ASCAssociation.org. And the New York State Association of Ambulatory Surgery Centers Spring Conference will be held May 10th and 11th in Saratoga Springs, New York. And we're going to have... I'd say more than two thirds of our employees out there. Uh, Mm -hmm. We're actually all of our of our uh, centers have been invited, and New York State have been invited to a uh, a pre conference uh, meeting for a couple hours in the morning of May tenth where we're just going to update people on uh, what's going on and uh, kind of uh, give everybody an opportunity to get to know uh, other clients of ours. The ASC Director of Nursing Boot Camp, the May 2022 cohort, is May 24th through the 27th. And for more information, you go to ASCPodcast.com. And the New Jersey ASC Association's annual conference is going to be June 7th and 8th at the Hilton East Brunswick, and I'll be speaking on succession planning. Mm-hmm. And don't forget about all of our recorded events. They're all available on ASCPodcast.com. We have the Credentialing Conference, the Fall 2021 Finance and Accounting Conference, the Conditions for Coverage Conference, the Medical Director Conference, and the Administrators Boot Camp Self-Paced Version. And I do want to remind everybody again that the benefits of becoming a patron member of the podcast, the patron member program, which we also refer to as ASC Central, is an exclusive membership website that provides a one-stop ASC regulatory and accreditation compliance operations and financial management resource for busy administrators, nurse managers, and business office managers. And resources include some virtual conferences, links to policies and procedures and forms and drills, discounts on services and books, and access to AEU credits. Membership helps to defray the costs of producing the podcast, including research staff, travel costs to conferences, equipment costs, and production costs. And for more information, please visit ASCPodcast.com. 
Well, that's it for this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey. And please spread the word about our podcast with your friends and colleagues and do us the honor of hitting that subscribe button. The sound editor for this episode is Susan Cronkite. Executive producer is John Gailey. Research assistance is provided by Susan Cronkite, Jenna Alvarez, Judy D'Ambrosio, Alex Borneman, Zach Calaritis, Amy Durbano, Lori Rodericks, and Ann Geyer. Music is provided by Media Sushi and Mike Noah, and the ASC Podcast with John Gailey is hosted on Podbean and is available on all major podcast channels. We would like to thank our sponsors, Surgical Information Systems, providing cutting-edge information solutions for surgery providers and ambulatory healthcare strategies, the nation's leading regulatory compliance resource for ambulatory surgery centers. For more information about our sponsors, visit our website at ASCPodcast.com. This podcast has been an educational and operational tool and is not intended to be a comprehensive resource for all rules, regulations, and standards that an ambulatory surgery center must meet. The advice provided should not be considered as, nor does it constitute legal advice or opinion. When reviewing specific situations involving legal and regulatory issues, attorneys and other professionals should be consulted. This has been a production of Eden Group Development. All rights are reserved. If you're interested in advertising or sponsoring the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, please email us at info at ASCPodcast.com. We would love to hear your questions and comments. Please email us at comments at ASCPodcast.com. <laughs>